0: Welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about the history of our publicly available transportation, public spaces, and what surrounds us in the public sphere. I'm Cheryl Grossglazer, your host, and today's episode is the first of two about the history of the public space of the American College campus. So... There was just a lot on this, and so I decided to do it, too. And I have to say, I'm right in the middle of researching our next episode after these, which will be about Moynihan Train Hall in New York. And... Um, Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to bring that to you because I found this film, or rather this journalist kind of directed me to this film um, that actually has scenes inside the train station. So, very exciting. I will talk about that a lot in that episode, but let's get on our way. We have a lot to say here. There's um, there's certain things themes. <laughs> I should talk correctly. Um, certain themes we have uh, that are going to go weave throughout these two episodes. Um, money, um, inclination, uh, the purpose of the university for or college for its students, and then its purpose really in terms of the wider world so we will get to that and then certain designs that go with those differing notions um anyway so let's start with our moment in equity and these two episodes are going to have uh, related moments in equity um According to a 2017 report from American Public Media, profits from slavery and related industries funded many of our prominent U.S. colleges, and many colleges were built by enslaved individuals, um, or from profits from... Off of their enslavement. Uh, Indirect monies went to Harvard, Columbia, Princeton, and Yale. In terms of direct slave labor and profits therefrom, we can point to colleges in southern states, including the University of Virginia, planned by Thomas Jefferson. Uh, He himself, who blamed George III at length in the first draft of the Declaration of Independence for hoisting upon the colonies, and I quote, a cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. end of quote. Uh, Brown University's initial donation uh, was made by a wealthy owner of slave ships. So you see where I'm, I'm getting at. Uh, Jefferson's example is instructive in so many ways, and it's worth a slight digression, and we're going to go more into Jefferson in the episode. Um, and though you can read endlessly about the topic of Jefferson's lifelong relationship with the institution of slavery, he was a person who loved the good life. He loved his nice clothes, fine wines, beautiful architecture, uh, but he couldn't keep a, a penny in his pocket, right? He was terrible. Terrible at uh, saving money. Thus, unlike George Washington, also from Virginia, who's freed his slaves when he passed away, Jefferson um, uh, would have left his his one remaining, his one still living daughter from his his marriage and her children uh, destitute, if he if he had if he had freed all these slaves. So he basically chose this daughter uh, above these people who were. He, he'd known for, you know, many of them for decades and seen their children grow up. Um, and he only freed during his lifetime or upon his death the children born to him from Sally Ma- Hemings, which mm-hmm. he had agreed to her with, you know, he made an agreement with her when she agreed to come back from France with him. Um, and she would have been, she, she was a teenager at that point and not even an older teenager. Uh, getting back to colleges, uh, like today's fossil fuel economy that's connected to something poisonous for humankind and we can't uh, seem to get ourselves out of the grip of, be- partly because the profits are so great, this was similar to the wealth of the pre-Civil War U.S., which was invested in slaves. The Jesuit monastery that operated George Georgetown University soon found itself in debt, and the co- college continued to exist and to subsidize the education of white young men only, Uh, and they did this only through the sale of 272 enslaved persons who were sold further south. Although manumission or freeing uh, these slaves was considered, the money was was just too powerful a lure and too effective a remedy for fixing uh, the ailing school. And only in the past few years has Georgetown renamed buildings whose previous names had honored two of the Catholic priests involved in that sale. And we're going to go further into that um that Georgetown sale of of enslaved persons in our moment of equity in the next episode. But now we are going to go to the college campus. So why the heck are we even looking at colleges and universities? And my answer is, is twofold. I'm just taking my sips of coffee here. Oh, that's it. <laughs> in, my, in my very messy closet, which is my makeshift uh, recording studio. So the first the first reason is, first, virtually every planner and architect and most landscape architects have attended college. Often their formative experiences as adults with public spaces um, that are in any way different from where they grew up are on their college campuses. The public spaces of colleges, and I would include universities, of course, are formed in part by the placement of buildings, their topographies and scenery. And they're generally, I would argue, among our most successful public spaces and amongst our most uh, pedestrian and bike-friendly communities in the U.S. So they're Im- important in that second way as well. So how has the design of the higher educational campus changed through the decades and centuries in the U.S., and why even look at the United States? There are universities all over the world. Um we're going to explore that first question, how has the design cha- changed through decades and centuries in the U.S., but I'll answer the U.S. Uh, question, I mean, we'll answer that in the episode, but we'll answer the the, the other question, why the U.S. right now? Um, Uh, The U.S. campus began almost at the beginning of British settlement, and the campus grew and changed over time. It really is a nice window into the reflection of trends in education, in cities, and in society as a whole, um, and I have to add also that that among people I've known who have gone to you, European universities, um, often it's not the same kind of campus life or expectation of campus life as the American university have has. The American university is really designed to be um, kind of a functional. Uh, town or, or urban em- entity either in itself or in connection with the community in which it finds itself that you know, I found so interesting in researching this uh, episode. So we're going to examine college space and architecture from a couple of different perspectives. One, in terms of uh, educational purpose of the higher educational institution. Space is complementing that purpose, reflecting it. Two, um, college space is community space. As I said, part of a city or apart from it. And, um, and I'll add, I know I said three, uh, two, but I'll add a third, um, the perceived value of education or the type of educational um, experience and its particular type of students. Um, it could be in relation to the, to the institution's founders, be they individuals or the state, and how the layout, architecture and layout um, kind of reflect that valuation. Um, I I did rely a lot on one book today, um, but I did also supplement that greatly uh, with website information and articles. You'll see that all in the show notes. But I do want to do a little shout out to the book and to the person who wrote the book. Um, The book is Campus and American Planning Tradition. It was written by a longtime Stanford professor and now professor emeritus, Paul Venable Turner, who has educated himself at Harvard. So he's associated with two of the most famous uh, wealthy uh, universities in the U.S., if not the world. Professor Turner tr- was trained both an architect and an art, art historian, and he taught the history of architecture for more than 40 years at Stanford. His first book, um, Campus, an American planning tradition, was was published in the 80s. It's um, available for free on loan from the Internet Archive, if you want to check that out. And I've also examined many, many images, histories, documents related to the schools, both that Turner wrote, Turner wrote about in his book, as well as those um, mentioning otherwise that, that he, he did not include. And um, and, and I have to say, he really concentrated on what he sees as, quote-unquote, the leading uh, universities in terms of design and architecture, each representing a period or demonstrating a trend that we'll be discussing or he discusses different architects. And we're going to go a little less deep, a lot less deep than he goes into it in his book, and yet with more breadth um, to look at um, more cam- campuses okay time for a cup of my coffee coffee beans from zeke they did not pay me to say that but i really like their stuff i do cheat on them from time to time i do want to say i don't only drink their coffee and i and i do like one particular type the guatemala just in case you're looking for something kind of reminds me of a good diner coffee but really good okay another sip and then we'll start Okay, the word campus is derived from the Latin word for field. Think uh, Campo di Fiore in Rome. In England, the country of the the precursor to American higher education, originally Oxford and Cambridge had uh, were all closed quadrangles, surrounded by buildings, walled in. Uh, but this was changing even before what became British America w- was colonized. It, um in the second half of the 16th century, so we're talking later 1500s, 1557 to be exact, so not too late, we see a graduate of Cambridge uh, returning from his medical studies in Italy, and he funds the building of a new court at um, at one of the Cambridge colleges. And for reasons of maximizing fresh air, he insists that the field or campus be um, surrounded by buildings on only three sides. This also follows a trend in France at the time for the design of chateaus, kind of to have that three, that three, uh, three-sided chateau and kind of that welcoming um, entry, if you will. Um, so when we talk about fresh air, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that a little a little bit more. That's gonna come into play um, as well. So that's to say that, that even before the English come here, there's, there's, already, uh, there's already changes afoot. Um, and these changes are also reflected, Paul Venable Turner says, um, the 16th century innovation away from the closed quadrangle cra- was also uh, a rejection somewhat of what kind of animates the university up to this point, which is the monastic tradition. Think of all those nice robes you see in old movies of professors wearing, um, which was the monastic tradition was the major influence on both curricula and design of colleges in England. And now we have um, an architecture design that shows some openness to the surrounding community and to the world. And both of these traditions are going to weave in and out strongly as we, as we uh, move on. Is the campus closed or is it open? And what's going on at the time in the greater society and in education? So college planning and design in the colonies predates the big city. It doesn't predate the town, but it does predate the big city. At the time of the first founding of the first college, we have no large cities in what became the United States. We're barely 20 years after the founding of the early colony of Massachusetts Bay. So remember 1620, Plymouth Rock, yada, yada, yada. You could have a whole... um, podcast about that and i would i would direct you to ben franklin's world for a lot of interesting podcasts about uh about that period and that time and um Native Americans and the early settlers. It's just fascinating. So barely 20 years after the founding of the colony, we have Harvard being founded, but it took almost another 50 years after that before the next college is founded, this time in Virginia when William and Mary uh, was established. By the time of the Revolution, there were nine, uh, two in New Jersey, Um, excuse me, uh, two in New Jersey. And generally, these schools were not educational centers for British America as a whole. They were generally centers of learning for individual colonies or for regions. Uh, Although there were some exceptions to this rule in terms of individuals who attended them. So uh, two would be one of our, uh, two would be, you know, uh, prominent founding fathers. Um, One is James Madison, who grew up in Virginia and returned there, but he went to um, university at Princeton and Alexander Hamilton who attended but did not graduate from uh, what became Columbia University he did later become a trustee and I've just read or I'm just finishing a book about Alexander Hamilton that is, is fascinating too and again, that, that other podcast, Ben's Franklin's World, has a good podcast on him and on that, that recent book. Okay, um, so interesting, there were none by the time of the revolution um, in what became the Deep South, because there you have a much smaller population population. Um, proportion of the population that would be seeking out higher education, right? It's not for women, so they're out. It's not for the poor, so they're, or the working class, so they're out. It's certainly not for enslaved individuals at this point, so they're out. So that proportion um, who would be of a class interested in and, and able to afford a university education is much um, is much smaller. And this meant that the college or university wouldn't be as much of a presence in the colonial or, or very early Republic South, although they do, they do certainly catch up. So let's, let's go back and go a little deep into those early colleges, pre, pre-Revolution colleges. So very early on, colleges were humble affairs. Um, and this began to change quickly. They don't remain humble affairs for long. Uh, the buildings at new campuses in colonial times uh, began to be considered quite important buildings and worthy of recognition. An, exe- uh, an exception, but not an isolated one, um, in terms of how prominent is NASA Hall at Princeton, which was the largest building in North America when it was built. The same held true in their respective colonies for buildings constructed at William & Mary and at Harvard. And the same time that Princeton was founded, this college town now, it's still a town, but kind of a New York City suburb, although an outer suburb, was a small village. It wasn't the thriving town it was to become, and in fact, the open area at Princeton was the original commons for the town. If you look inside the gates at, at Princeton, what's really nice is that you know, the university has managed to protect its open spaces, whereas many older universities have succumbed to the post-World War II needs of, um, of growing enrollments by covering over much of their campuses. Um, and maybe this is because Princeton never became the large city uh that maybe its founders thought it would become, or it never became a large city at all. And the university remains um, probably the most prominent presence in the town. Harvard, the first U.S. college, was founded in what was then a pretty rural area, albeit not too far from what was then Boston, but it was it was eight miles away, which was a decent distance at the time. Cambridge was not as large as it is now. Um, it later expanded, so it's now you know the edge of Cambridge is much closer to Boston than it was at the time, um, and and Harvard itself would be considered. Yeah, I'm not sure. Anyway. Uh, Harvard was established by and with funding of the government, the Great and General Court of the Governor and Company of the Massachusetts Bay in New England. And we'll see this over and over again, that kind of um, porous if you will, definition, uh, relationship between the state and these colleges. We have, we think in terms of private and public colleges, but these, these early private colleges or colleges that later are public are, are often um, established kind of in the same way uh, by the state or colony or um, by a prominent group of citizens. It's established in what was then uh, known as Newtown, only later, a few years later, renamed Cambridge. Um, Newtown itself was only founded in 1630, and in bare six years later, in 1636, Harvard is founded. The town itself consisted of uh, farms that are, are technically outside the town, Family planting plots and houses inside the town borders, um, and a cooperatively owned village common. Another sip of coffee here. Harvard itself was on the outskirts of the village. Uh, Two years after it is founded, John Harvard, who is a minister, uh, he was someone in his early 30s, he's married for 10 years at this point, but he's childless, he passes away and he leaves... um, where we think he leaves, because I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment, uh, his library and half of his estate to the school, and then it's ne- then named for him. Um, in actuality, this is uh, what I'll call, in quotes, an oral will, um, in that he, he supposedly tells this to his wife, who then recounts this and um, attributes uh, the, this gift to her husband, to her late Husband, but we do not have a document, um, and and we uh, so this this early benefactor, uh, the school is named for him. Again, a trend. Uh, Princeton, which is settled at some point in the late century, since 17th century, 1600s, was a town of significant size when it's founded um, in 1656, but it's, it's also founded off to the side, and it's, it's kind of set back. Um, there was this idea early on that colleges would be missionary and educational institutions, um, both for that colonial population and for Native populations. But that did not, that, that latter idea for educating um, Native Americans did not take hold in a big way. Uh, the rural, excuse me, the rural village and field ideal uh, did stick. The college would promote um, the idea was that the college would promote community cohesion and religious uniformity and was considered a, nece- a necessity, an important part of an upper crust or gentleman's education, uh, from before the formation of the United States national identity. Um, by the time of the revolution, however, we have colleges that are already being founded well outside of major cities um, or towns. We have Dartmouth in New Hampshire being an excellent example. There's um, a distrust, a presumption of corrupting influence of cities. And and also, at the same time, kind of a, a, a complementary idea that community cohesion among students and a singular religious focus for each Institution also makes isolation more attractive. So getting to the placement of buildings, at the very beginning at Harvard, the construction of separate buildings, instead of adding on to an existing structure and having that, that closed or open quadrangle, having separate buildings was itself an innovation. Um, perhaps born more of um, an availability of land than of creativity, we don't know. But the yard or campus had three buildings on three sides with an open-ended side. It was open to the town. It was... Expansive in terms of a sense of both community and space. And before we salute any architects or urban planners, uh, this configuration which may well have had a, a much more practical and life saving purpose. Um, the buildings were made of wood rather than the masonry construction of colleges in England, and fire was a very real concern. Uh, by having separate buildings, you basically have a firewall that protects part of your investment, um, even if part of it is destroyed. And, and fire was a very real um, concern and a, an ongoing reality in colonial and early America. Oh, that is good coffee. Um, there's also a religious connection to the hesitance to employ the design of colleges in in the motherland of Great Britain. Um, they want theirs. Um, less religious uniformity throughout the colonies, but there's also a desire within certain colonies and in certain areas to follow, to have a community centered around a uniform religious belief and practice. And this certainly happened in um, the 17th century in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Design was intentional from the beginning, but there was... um, later a revisiting of that design even by the 1670s so you have a a college now at Harvard that's a few decades old and already we're seeing this this is um an area where there's trends every few decades. And this was, uh, this is true today, and it was true in the 1600s. Um, this resulted in the beginning of what anyone today would recognize as the heart or platonic ideal of the American college campus and of Harvard itself, because I would, I would argue that Harvard and a few others are definitely kind of that... Become that prototypical idea of, of what is a beautiful college campus look like. Harvard was Puritan in its religious focus, uh, no surprise being in Massachusetts, while William and Mary, which came along fifty years later, was Anglican. Indeed, uh, William and Mary was founded with a royal charter from the King and Queen. Um, Also, there were towns in a few cities, in in small cities in New England by this time. uh, We're talking late 1600s, whereas Virginia and the South were generally oriented toward these widely scattered, uh, uh, I can say it, agricultural (laughs) work camps um, that enslaved labor. They're they're basically like um, labor camps. Called plantations and referred to sometimes romantically as plantations, but of course we know they they were not um, romantic places at all. They were uh, places of much work and um, suffering and lack of freedom. Uh, For William and Mary, the college precedes the town of Williamsburg rather than adding to it, as Harvard did for Cambridge, or at that um, you know later as as let's say Princeton did. Being Anglican, William and Mary's plan for its first common space was a quadrangle surrounded on all four sides by separate buildings. But with a change of personnel and the town of Williamsburg growing uh, later in, in 1698, becoming the capital of the Virginia colony and the presumed site of a future large metropolis, the college was designed to be at one end of a grand boulevard and open to the city. And I'm going to say, you know, I think of that main kind of walkway at University of Pennsylvania that really comes to mind here. This kind of um, 16th, 17th century um, Main Street kind of feeling. Um, the three-sided design uh, with separate structures, a large building in the middle and on two adjacent sides, uh, each had a smaller building, more resembled an estate or a villa than was built at Harvard. Harvard. Interesting also is that William & Mary's constituency came from a more practical, less scholarship-oriented population, and its curriculum reflect- reflected the practice I am really all over the place today, reflected the pragmatism of its local colonial population. And I suppose anybody wanted a classic education at that point who had, who had money from uh, the South could go back to England, which some did. And by the way, via the William and Mary Wikipedia entry, the college, while it is the second oldest in the U.S. and founded with a royal charter, can boast the oldest existing college building in the United States, the Sir Christopher Wren Building. And I can't resist here because I actually found it with a little digging. uh, Reading from the royal charter of the College of William and Mary. It's well worth reading. It's not too long, and it, it you can find it printed, as opposed to reading it in a faded s- script. Um, anyway, we, d- we do have that in the show notes, the link to that. Um, so I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs here, but first, take a sip of coffee to relieve my throat a little bit along the way. Okay, Forasmuch as as our well-beloved and faithful subjects constituting the General Assembly of our colony of Virginia have had it in their minds and have proposed to themselves... To the end, that the Church of Virginia may be furnished with a seminary of ministers of the gospel, and that the youth may be piously educated in good letters and manners, and that the Christian faith may be propagated amongst the Western Indians, to the glory of Almighty God to make, found, and establish a certain place of universal study or perpetual college of divinity, philosophy, languages, and other good arts and sciences, consisting of one president, six masters or professors, and a hundred scholars, more or less, according to the ability of the said college and the statutes of the same— to be made increased, diminished, or changed there by certain trustees nominated and elected by the General Assembly aforesaid, to wit, our faithful and well-beloved, and then they name the trustees and the location of the college, on the south side of a certain river, commonly called York River, or elsewhere where the General Assembly itself shall think more convenient within our colony of Virginia to be supported and and maintained in all time coming." I'll add that Section 15 of the Charter provides that proceeds from certain trade in tobacco was restricted to fund the construction and operation of the college. This was way before anyone, of course, was aware of the negative health consequences of smoking or chewing tobacco, and there's no mention also, of course, that uh, it would be enslaved individuals, uh, mainly, who are growing and harvesting that tobacco. Uh, Getting a little more off-topic, but in a different colony, let's move up to Yale. Yale was founded in 1701 by the Connecticut legislature, but its beginnings date back to 1656 with purchases for a college library. And then um, nine years later, in 1665, suspending those... those plans for college when the two colonies of New Haven and Connecticut merged. And until I researched this episode, I did not know that. And I went down, I will admit, a rabbit hole on that topic. Okay, in 1701, a Connecticut uh, statute establishes Yale. It's an act for liberty to erect a collegiate school. It provided that And I quote, its mission was to instruct youth in the arts and sciences and fit them for public employment, both in church and civil state, end quote. And for about its uh, initial seven years, the college operated from the home of a minister. Then it moved to the nearby town of Saybrook, Connecticut, which proved to be an unpopular and out-of-the-way location. New Haven, where Yale ultimately moved, had been, as I said, a separate colony, established in 1638 with the idea of being a theocracy, Uh, though itself it was settled by uh, those fleeing persecution by Anglicans in England. After becoming part of Connecticut, New Haven became a co-capital with Hartford. So, Yale moves in 1716 to New Haven after competition, and I love this because these are, these are the kind of things that go on now, and we think this is just the modern world, but actually they date uh, further back, I guess, a part of human nature. So, there's a competition, um, and, and New Haven enters this competition uh, as to where Yale is going to be located. And according to an official history of the university, and I quote, uh, well, I'll start to quote in a second, New Haven, uh, quote, whose citizens had outbid all other communities in both land and money to support the college, end quote. So as an inducement or inducements before winning the competition as part of the competition, the city of New Haven, um, they basically start constructing the college. They constructed a large building with a library, dining hall, and dormitory dormitory rooms as an inducement to the college uh, leaders to locate there. Um, and there were also behind these buildings what resembled an English garden with paths and trees around the edges of the college. Um, so... Just like sports arenas are sometimes located in places where you have people saying, "Okay, we'll we'll pay for this," or you know, uh, states or cities will say, "We'll pay for this." Uh, this this reminded me of that. Uh, Yale is the earliest college to be designed without modeling itself on the English or European um, higher educational uh, institutions. Um, these and and I want to go. F- digress for a second because um, in the old world as it were uh, there's uh, a separation a distinction between what is a college and a university that that tends to be lost in American history um, so in the u.s. now you consider an, a university an institution with um, any kind of graduate, Education, in addition to undergraduate, whereas usually undergraduate only is generally not universally called a college. There, there are exceptions. Um, in the old world, you have a place like Cambridge University, but there's separate colleges at the university. So every residential college, and you'll see even American universities have uh, or colleges have residential colleges like your dorm or area of campus. Those were considered separate colleges at uh, European and English universities and and may still be. Um, So, Yale uh, directs itself, orients itself, kind of these buildings lined up in a row facing the town green. Um, Although all but one of these early buildings would only last until the end of the 19th century, so it doesn't become you know, what Yale would look like to this day, that configuration was duplicated at quite a few liberal arts colleges and, be, and what became other major colleges and universities in New England, including Brown, Dartmouth, Amherst, Middlebury, and the University of Vermont. And like tr- planning trends... Um, in any kind of, uh, building or public space, um, what is once new and innovative becomes sometimes considered traditional and dull, and then, uh, comes around again to going back into fashion. And we see that trendiness, that idea of fashion, uh, coming and going in this, in this realm as well. And I will take another sip and move on following the revolution. Okay, we have the Revolutionary War. And from the end of the Revolution through the early years of the Republic, uh, there's a proliferation of colleges, founding of colleges, and the hiring of professional architects for the design of buildings and the layout of grounds. This trend holds even for very rural frontier states and for the South. At this period, um, we have either state-run institutions or religiously affiliated schools, um, with religious sects sometimes competing through higher education. Most schools were constructed with dormitories uh, and required students to live in them as part of the school's in loco parentis role, but a few disagreed. And I won't go into detail on this, this is another rabbit hole, by the way, but It is very entertaining to read about that eternal debate that revolves around the fact that um, lots of teens and young 20s, uh, in this case young men in in those days, now young people, you know, people of that age in close quarters is not always a pleasant scenario. And how do you kind of raise them into being mature adults? You know, that's that's um, as much a concern in the uh, late 18th century and early 19th century as it is today. Even before the University of Virginia, which we're going to discuss um is founded, we have the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and then also a college that became uh, the University of South Carolina, which used a three-sided plan, but with buildings lining uh, a longer rectangular green space. Um, We're going to go to the University of Vermont at this point. Um, it's founded in 1791. It's the year that Vermont became a state. It's um, the year after George Washington became president. So we have, you know, the early constitutional period. The first Congress is meeting. They are, um, the government in this point is in New York, but um, or it's... Uh, I'm sorry. I I said that in error. It was in New York until the middle of 1790, and it has moved to Philadelphia. Uh, The Bowery Boys, by the way, have a fabulous episode about the Constitution and the selection of the U.S. capital city and this 10-year move to Philadelphia and all the personalities and the deals um, made involving that. It's really fascinating. Uh, the University of Vermont is founded, like its predecessors, by, the, in this case, a leading citizen, as opposed to um, leading citizens. We have one main um, leader here, uh, but, it, but in this case, this person is a land developer and speculator named Ira Allen. And perhaps we would today have I, Allen University, uh, but we ha- have the University of Vermont. Ira Allen. Uh, he's, he's a bit of a huckster. He's a bit of a self-promoter and one of these people who kind of uh, likes to do big things, whether he actually has the ability or capacity to do them or not. He never actually donated the money that he pledged, uh, although he did donate land, and he did so to avoid, at the time, another college being formed, which would be the Maine or the University of Vermont, which was Middlebury. I guess that uh, Middlebury is founded in 1800, but there's already talk of that. And it's located in, an, in a completely different part of the state. Now it's only about a half hour away. And Allen's um, influence... Uh, was in Burlington, so he wanted the university there. Uh, Allen, by the way, later flees Vermont because of his creditors, and he died penniless in Pennsylvania. Uh, The space and architecture uh, at the University of Vermont is a good school to examine at this point. We're talking 1791 through, like, the 1820s. It shares a relatively early Founding, It doesn't succumb in many ways to later fads in collegiate design, so you really do get the feeling when you, when you walk around there of what that early design must have been. Uh, it gives a feel uh, that its predecessors and, and contemporaries don't always have in terms of their early design. Um, this is a school that doesn't feel apart from the surrounding neighborhood, It ha- and it has plenty of coll- common space, and yet feels like a campus. Uh, early images show a building whose cornerstone was laid by General Uh Lafayette, by the way, during his travels in the U.S. in 1824. Um, he lays the cornerstone after the original building was destroyed in a fire. Lafayette, by the way, was on um, a, a trip in which he went to every U.S. state uh, at the time in 1824, and he must have been at this point quite um, an older gentleman, having, having served during the Revolution. So that original building, which uh, the building's... Around it later joined to be one building called the Old Mill Building, um, and that building had been modeled after Nassau Hall at Princeton, uh, according to the pages of the UVM website, also in our show notes. It constituted the entirety of the university until, this, uh, until the fire that destroyed it, and it also served for two years as a military arsenal and barracks during the War of 1812. So you have these three replacement buildings, later joined to be Old Mill, and I'm skipping some history here. Um, it's the, this is the centerpiece of the initial university row, so similar to the layout of Yale, um, but built following this fire. Um, We're going to hear later about, again, about single buildings constituting the entirety of a campus. Um, But here at UVM, we have a lovely setting. Uh, It's an open space in the city, but on Lake Champlain. And if you've ever been to Burlington, you know what I'm talking about. If you've never been there, please visit. What a lovely, a lovely small city. It's great in the summer, but I'm sure it's wonderful in the winter, although... It has a long winter, but really a fun, lovely, very walkable uh, place in the summertime. Okay, so uh, in this period, in this post-revolutionary War period, the most prominent college architect was a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Henry Latrobe. He was an Englishman who was school who had been schooled in Germany, but studied architecture in England and returned uh, to the U.S. following his breakdown um, after his wife's death from childbirth. His work included remodeling existing buildings, such as at Princeton and the University of Pennsylvania. Excuse me, as well as designing buildings at new institutions such as the University of Pennsylvania Medical School and the University of Maryland School of Medicine, a building that still exists to this day. Latrobe also participated in many civil engineering projects as well. He served as the second architect of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., as chief engineer of the Navy. Uh, during uh, Jefferson's presidency. Um, And Dickinson College still has a building at the center of its campus called Old West, designed by Latrobe. We have a tendency in the 19th century to build institutions that appear important and imposing, as if to say, we're here, we're this new country, but we're, you know, established. And we're going to see this, I think, at the University of Virginia, if you look at its architecture. It kind of has that feeling. Um, but but the interesting thing about the University of Virginia, which we're going to start to get to um, now, is... You not only have um, an architecture and a a campus layout that says we're here, but that is intentionally seeking to promote a particular kind of educational experience and a confrontation that's definitely too strong a word uh, between being on the one hand, a humble, small, scholastic village, and on the other hand, a we are an important university, exclamation point, design. Um... And, and in the book, I'll quote, in Venable's book, I'll quote, the designs produced by these men, by these professional architects, uh, naturally had a more sophisticated and uniform character than the colonial plans, as well as an architectural grandeur that was an appropriate expression of the ambitious educational goals of the new American nation. And now we're going to look at the University of Virginia, Virginia. Um, because like some of the other, other uh, universities mentioned above, it's been used as a template by other colleges and universities. Um, it's also the only university founded um, very intentionally by a founding father, um, although Hamilton did have a lot to do with Columbia University and how it moves forward, but not in terms of architecture. Um, And we have um, a founding father who also rose to the presidency and a founding father who was uh, the owner of enslaved people. We're going to talk for a while about the collegiate architectural influences on Jefferson. His ideas did not arise out of thin air. As I said, he attended, or I did not say yet, but he attended William and Mary. Uh, He later said that he thought little of the campus. But what he did like about the the experience there was the familial close relationship of the faculty and students, and his desire was to foster in perpetuity that kind of relationship through the design and layout of a campus for a public university in Virginia. So let's go back before the University of Virginia is founded. In 1771, um, and I'll quote from Venable, when he was 28 years old um, and asked to be royal governor of Virginia, Jefferson was asked to draw plans for an addition to the Wren building at William and Mary, his alma mater. This uh, early foray into college architecture included long sides to surround a quadrangle, which had already been planned, and extending an existing arcade walkway, a covered walkway, all around the quadrangle. Arcades remained a favorite feature of Jefferson's and an integral aspect of his later plan at UVA. Jefferson produced a design, uh, f- for William and Mary, of which the ground floor plan survives, and excavations have shown that construction actually was begun, although in 1776, the work was discontinued on account of the present troubles, end quote. Well, present troubles being, of course, the Revolutionary War. Uh, So that's really interesting. Who knows what would have been had the war not happened, had some kind of compromise uh, been reached between the colonies and the mother country, um, and we would have a very different William and Mary and perhaps not a University of Virginia. As governor of Virginia during the Revolutionary War, Jefferson also served on William and Mary's Board of Visitors. He wanted to do away with the Divinity School there and to make the school secular and public, but his vision was ultimately rejected. And so from that point on, he turns to building a new college. But this new college is not the University of Virginia. There's something else along the way. Jefferson was uh, exceptionally well-traveled also for a man of his time. He had seen architecture um, and urban and town layouts in many places by the time he designed the University of Virginia. He traveled widely throughout the northeastern British colonies. Um, and then um, far from his native country, he travels uh, pretty widely for five years in Europe. He's minister plenipotentiary, Did I pronounce that right? Plenipotentiary. And then as ambassador to France, uh, he follows Benjamin Franklin in that role during the Articles of Confederacy years. He also visited the Adams uh, couple, John and Abigail Adams in London, and he traveled in England. And as his uh, William and Mary involvement showed, he was early on interested in higher education. As vice president under Adams, Jefferson also worked on a plan for a national university, which never came to be, but he did quite a bit of work on this. And this familiarized him with those in the field of creating higher educational institutions and with campus design at the time. So what were those examples that he might have been uh, aware of? Let's take a little more coffee. I'm not actually drinking that much because I'm I'm doing the podcast. Mm. And I don't mind cold coffee and this is at this point I mean say lukewarm is probably saying a lot. It's more on the room temperature side. Okay, so what were these examples? Um, First, a relatively new college uh, founded in 1795 is uh, Union College, which still exists today in upstate New York, and it retains much of its early ambitious architecture and layout. It was unusual for the time, and this might have spoken to Jefferson, in that it was non-sectarian, uh, union's fourth president, a very early president. seems like their first few years, they go through presidents very quickly. But this fourth president lasted de- decades, and he, he basically created uh, the college known today. His name was, and I'm going to mispronounce this, Elifelit Um and he served for 62 years. And may I just say, you don't get names like that today. Okay. Elifela. I don't know where you even put the emphasis in those syllables. Okay. Uh, We'll just say, (laughs) refer to him by his last name, not, had the same philosophy as Jefferson regarding an academic community, uh, close-knit, familial-like faculty-student relationships. And he works with a French-born architect, Joseph Jacques Remy, who produced a plan with a long, open quadrangle. And at the center of this quadrangle, um, he placed a semicircular arcade with classrooms in that building and attached on either side. So this, think about the, the center of um, one of the sides of a rank, rectangle, There's this uh, um, semicircular arcade with classrooms in that building and attached on either side to what's referred to as their North and South colleges with student dorms and uh, faculty residences at the end. And if you've ever uh, seen the University of Virginia... Or seeing Union College, and you can—it's very easy to get images of these places online. You—you you get a good idea of the similarities here. Also, like the University of Virginia, Remy's designs show a decided European influence. They also show a then um, kind of Yale-like configuration of buildings lined up in a row. Um, in the case of Union, facing the town green. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Uh, in in Yale's case, facing the town green at Union, looking out on a campus that faces downtown Schenectady, New York, um, a small city that's near um, the state capital of Albany. And from the Reme drawings, not kept the north and south colleges and a colonnade walkway. Remember, that's a a really uh, iconic feature of the later University of Virginia, um, despite the striking sam- similarities of Union College and Jefferson's plans for Union uh, for UVA, there's no concrete evidence um, that Jefferson was aware of these plans or saw images or visited uh, Union, or or perhaps uh, Union was described to him. We don't we don't know. Another prominent school built during this period was the University, or what became the University of South Carolina. Uh, it's founded in eighteen o one, and in eighteen o five, it enrolls nine students in its first class. So these are very small institutions. I don't think anyone ever envisioned, you know, ten, twenty, thirty thousand students at any of these places. Um, If you look at photos online at this university, and this is one I haven't uh, visited, and you see early drawings of it, you see a beautiful, beautiful school that's similar in many ways um, to Brown and to the University of Pennsylvania as well as to UVA. Um, Like UVA and Penn, and like um, if you've ever been to Dumbarton Oaks Gardens in Washington, D.C., which is now owned by Harvard and open to the public, we see a lot of Federalist architecture, lots of brick buildings, brick walls, and brick walkways. Um, We see something called the Horseshoe at University of South Carolina, which is a long, elongated quadrangle, so you get this recurring theme here, the elongated quadrangle, a la UVA or Union, and we see buildings that look very similar to each other. Again, lots of brick um, and similar to what sees uh, what one sees at Harvard amongst its historic building. Um, it's a gorgeous school um, and, and tons of trees. You can see lots of photos online with the sunlight coming through the trees. Um, gorgeous. So Jefferson wanted what he perceived as the best recipe for higher education, a true university such as he had seen in Europe, but with a small village feel, again, this close relationship among faculty and students. So this marriage, if you will, of a small intimate um, learning environment with the resources and scholastic reach of a university is reflected... In the then vice president's, uh, this is the late 1790s, early 1800s, overseeing of a competition for essays about establishing a national universities. At least one entrant included a description of how buildings would be laid out, with the description being quite close to what Jefferson eventually adopts at UVA. Um, And in case you think that Jefferson lifted this idea of concentric quadrangles, with professors living in houses on outer set of buildings that would be connected to their classroom, uh, Venable points out in his book that we don't actually know uh, who gave this idea idea to whom uh, then Jefferson becomes president it's a very busy job uh, and he uh, he's not as involved at this point with the college planning he's going home occasionally to Sally Hemings uh, to his children from his marriage and I think at this point he may have um, I can't remember if he still has two daughters left from his marriage Um or, or just the one who was alive at his death, and to his children from Sally Hemings. Um, he has many grandchildren from uh, his last living daughter. I think she had 11 or 12 children, and Sally Hemings had um, had a number as well. I think she has about six or eight children. Um, he has a large estate that he's managing and many enslaved persons. Um it's, it's, I've written, I've read, I haven't written, I've read elsewhere that, that his sons from his union with Sally Hemmings looked quite a bit like him. Um, and I'm not going to go into this whole relationship with her, um, she was actually the half-sister of his late wife. They had uh, the same father. She's only about 14 at the time, or 16 when she's uh, first impregnated by Jefferson, and he's 30 years older than her. So, uh, ew, all I can say is ew. Uh, We won't go more into that. Obviously, lots of people have written about that. It was denied for a very long time. Um, It's incredibly interesting topic, but we're going to go further on. While Jefferson is president, um, he also had the same architect working at his house at Monticello um, as who won the competition uh, to design what became the University of South Carolina. So he's still, in a way, connected to... um, to this, this field of new colleges, and what are they going to look like, and what is the experience going to be like? How are people going to experience these in terms of place? Jefferson rejects what William & Mary essentially is, which is a school where most everything is housed in one building, that being at that time the Christopher Wren Building. He also had real concerns um, in terms of public health, uh, contagious disease, and and fire. You know, housing everything in this one building. He also has, as we've said before, this romantic notion of we that weaves throughout American history in terms of uh, the design of college, colleges and universities. This academical village ideal. Uh, Something unusual at UVA, but also at the earlier founded Union College, was this uh, lack of a chapel, and a and unique uh, at UVA when it is founded for having its most prominent building, being, uh, which is the rotunda if you've ever seen UVA. At at UVA, it housed the library, and I believe now it's part of the library again, or it is a small library in itself again. It was the original library uh, and not a chapel. At Union College, we have not memorial named for its early president, located in the middle of the quadrangle. It was included in the initial plan under not, although it's not erected until 1879, and it has um, kind of a less usual place in that quadrangle than than the rotunda has. Um, The plans for the new University of Virginia were adopted by the trustees in 1817. Uh, This labor of love was Jefferson's last. The university opened in 1825, and Jefferson, as we all know, passed away within hours of his friend and uh, founding colleague, John Adams. They both uh, passed away on July 4th, 1826, within hours of each other. Uh, And Jefferson outlives his colleague for a very, very short time. Um, And this is... uh, An important day in that it was the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And we're going to leave off there in this first episode, ending at the end of the first quarter of the 19th century, with much college and university building happening. Thank you so much for listening today. Contribute your thoughts on Twitter, uh, elsewhere, uh, send emails, and you have a great day. I'm going to continue to drink my coffee, which I've only gotten to about half of, and we have a nice episode that goes further on in college planning coming up. Thank you.